Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is a Lip Media Podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and the Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening today. Welcome to the gays. (laughs) (laughs) Such energy. (laughs) Leave it in. Welcome to The Gays Are Revolting, a definitive weekly news source for contemporary gays. We put the G in LGBTQIA+, and we're here to help you be the best G you can be. Give us a shout out on Instagram at Gays Revolting Pod, or join our Facebook group at The Gays Are Revolting. And tell your friends about us. Podcasts rely on word of mouth, so tell your friends how revolting those gays are. Yeah. So (laughs) Pretty revolting. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. We are joined again by our regular host this okay. week. Luke. We have Luke, who, like a speed hump, everybody's had a go, but no one really likes them. <laughs> Accurate. Hi, yeah. Marky. And we also have Kyle. You like a new chair. Looks like a fun place to sit, but not really good for anything else. <laughs> oh! <laughs> and the lovely Thomas, who, like Drag Race, is on a slow decline. Oh! oh. <laughs> How dare you compare me to Drag Race? Oh, that's like the How ultimate insult. You. <laughs> it's like a double race. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I love you. We have such an exciting episode because we have two guests coming on the podcast. Not but. But two. But two. <laughs> Stand before me. Oh, my God. I would love to watch these two people battle it out because it's the grandma of uh, Melbourne drag, Miss Candy. Yes. And, of course, the wonderful uh, Nick Hollis, the founder of the Institute of Many, coming on to talk about and some wonderful things. But before we do, I have to tell you, well, mm-hmm. I have to tell Luke and Mikey some yeah. very exciting news. So, yes. Kyle, it was your partner's Hi. Duncan's birthday oh, a few yes. weeks ago. Du- Dunk's yeah. had his and 30th. I saw oh, this- did you have sex with Kyle's brother? No. What? <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, it's not the time. No, I mean, we did make out a little bit, but that's yeah. <laughs> so I and I bought a present for Duncan. Yeah, and you guys yeah. are gonna love it because I've been trying uh, to get Kyle to watch all these gay films for so long. So yeah. I went to JB Hi-Fi and I just bought like oh. six gay films and put them in a thing and said to Duncan, "You need to watch these with Kyle." So, so it's so, a present for me, <laughs> basically. Oh. So Kyle has now watched Priscilla I've Queen watched of the it. Desert. It's oh, happened. Hey. Oh my! God. I'm a new person. It's did you so like good. it? It was so good. Do you see I why had, it's like, so important? I was smiling a lot. Very, very Australian. I loved all the campy gayness of it. Like, their yeah. outfits were insane. Mm. The guys... Oh, I was laughing so much at the guys kind of... It's like male order bride. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, The yeah, Vietnamese yeah, yeah. lady, she was so great. Mm. I loved her and her ping pong show. Oh, my mm. God. I'm so surprised that all the actors aren't actually gay. I think they did a mm. crazy good job. Yeah. 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 Amazing, yeah. I saw Briefs, the show. Oh, did on, you? Oh, yeah. That, that was fucking phenomenal. Look at you watching Priscilla. Yeah, look at me. And going gay to as hell. theater. <laughs> I'm glad you seen Priscilla. It's... It's funny that you talk about the yeah. male order bride because that's like the one problematic thing I have uh, with that film. Do you know, yeah, I, is, yeah, a few years ago I started thinking that and then I watched an interview with her and it's the proudest thing that she's ever done. Oh, really? May, and I'm kind of like, yeah, well, yeah. she's It may be. Yeah. That's probably the one part. It's it's uh-huh. funny that it is, it is so iconic and like sticks in so many people's minds, mm. but it's also probably the one part of the film mm. that really makes me feel a bit funny. So, mm-hmm. 
Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> and that was so welcome. Thanks mom's... to Tom for giving <laughs> the DVD. Uh, and that was your mum's only ever acting role, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. well, we've yeah. lived off that for a very long time. Can I just say I the sound play. effect they use when the ping pong balls shoot out? <laughs> my God. I outgay you all. I met yes. Kylie Minogue. Oh, my <laughs> oh, God. I didn't, I didn't talk about this last week because we had Dr. What? George on. Yeah, and I didn't yeah. think it was like the right time to do it. But I went to the Kylie Minogue concert with our yeah. podcast friend, Joel Creasy. So we got there. We got into this row we're sitting like three rows from Kylie Minogue and to my left are all these kids I'm like why the fuck are there kids here and Joel leant over and goes oh they're Kylie's nephews (gasps) next to them is Brendan Minogue Kylie and Danny's brother and then next to them is Kylie's parents Ron and Carol oh my god Uh, and then sitting to the right of Joel was Danny's like so Danny's got a kid at school so the mums from the school she'd gotten cards for them but they also had t-shirts printed that had pictures of Danny that said hashtag Danny at "Mm, a Kylie Minogue that's a bit awkward okay whatever yeah but then at the end of the show Joel goes oh uh, I've got you a surprise and he pulls out these wristbands and they were to go backstage Mm. after the show so So then we got ushered like the whole row of us got ushered back stage it was literally only 40 people and it was like the family Kylie's singing teacher from high school this like couple that have lived down the road from her parents her whole life or whatever it was literally just 40 close family and friends and me and Joel oh my god <laughs> and anyway, so we're there and like Kylie's like doing this circle of the room and she's like we've been there for a little while and I didn't because you know family and yeah, friends I didn't yeah, want to interrupt no. or whatever and as she's coming towards us one of the mums <laughs> Danny's school mum friends walks past me and knocks my arm <gasps> which I was holding red wine and I spilled no! it all down my shirt and I was like fuck I can't make Kylie Minogue with red wine down on the front of my shirt so I got Joel and his manager and his manager's daughter to sort of form a wall around me yeah. while I took off <laughs> Took off my jacket and cardigan and took off my t-shirt and turned around and put it back on again and got redressed. (laughs) Jake Shears is standing two metres away from me. Kylie Minogue's five metres away. Redressed. And then as I put the shirt back on, they sort of parted ways and Kylie Minogue came over (laughs) and she was so fucking lovely. And so, like, she just performed to 10,000 people or something at Sydney My Music Bowl and was just, like, fresh out. It was, it was, (laughs) like, it was a religious experience. Um, (laughs) So I love Kylie Minogue and um, I'm really glad. But we're not here to talk about me. Oh, <laughs> bragging. <laughs> so I'm so excited to be joined um, by my favourite drag performer. And I think if you've been to a club in Melwood in the last several decades, you have definitely seen this person perform. It's Miss Candy. How are you, Miss hey. Candy? Oh, look, I'm absolutely fantastic. And it's so lovely to be in this room with all you gorgeous young men. Uh. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> you dirty flirt. <laughs> Candy and I perform at this same... I host trivia on Thursday nights at DT's and Candy's there doing Big Bold and Bitter on Saturday nights, which is the best drag show in Melbourne. I don't know if I've told you, though, Candy, about the first time we met. You probably don't remember it. I probably don't remember. No, I was me. started working at the Exchange Hotel when I was 18 years old and one day. <laughs> you remember that every, everyone used to go down to the market once Exchange closed yeah, and absolutely. had drinks down there? And I remember the first weekend I worked. We went down to the market and we went up to the upstairs bar and we're all sitting there and I thought I was so fucking cool hanging out with Miss Candy and Lucy Loosebox and Swish Everetti <laughs> you were so kind to me and, I, and I've loved you ever since oh well, that's good look I'm so so glad I had a I hope I didn't do anything wrong um, you did I, I don't know if I'm allowed so. to tell this story <laughs> I don't think so well you must have been gorgeous <laughs> oh fuck you <laughs> I do there is something I, oh, I probably shouldn't tell it but I do remember a couple of months later after I'd been working there uh, please if you don't like me telling no, the story no, we can cut it out no. but um, we were up at that bar and you said, I'm getting you a shot. And it was peppermint schnapps shot. And you're in a little cocktail dress. And I was sitting at the bar 18 years <laughs> a old. A little cocktail dress. A little cocktail dress. <laughs> and I was dumb as dog shit, little twink, sitting at the bar. And you leant over the bar. And out of the bottom of that dress fell two balls. That you'd, <laughs> you'd pulled out just beforehand just so I could get them right in my face. I think you were just uh, imagining things. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it intentionally. It just might, something might have happened to my G-strip. They were, <laughs> well, they were lovely balls. And I still remember it. Well, everybody thinks they are. <laughs> Now, to get started, I want to know how you started in drag. These days, uh, the story always is every young drag queen started out either at a Halloween party or after watching RuPaul's Drag Race. How did you start in drag? How old were you? And did your family know about it? Did your parents know about it? My parents didn't really know about it. And I I got into it by accident, really. Mm -hmm. In the old days, they used to have Queen's Birthday picnics. Oh, yes, I've seen photos from this. you'd go up to the country, you'd either go on a train or buses or, you know, there'd be a thousand people there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the royal family would arrive, you know, and they had like marching teams and I was a marching team I had a I was in a marching team and I had a deadpan face and moustache it was during the 70s right the village wow. people were, were very big you know yeah. so we all had leather on and oh. or vinyl whatever you could afford yeah. check shirts 
shirts, you know. And then from that, we ended up putting on a show called Misfits at the Ritz, which was, they had about 14 guys in it. I was the youngest. And they were, a lot of them were muscle men. Mm -hmm. And it was just a a whole lot of comedy numbers put together in a show. And we did it over a a new show every year. So that's how basically I started. But the drag was... So we're talking about 40 years ago. Yeah. Wow. And, And it was really like... It was moustache drag. Yeah. You know? So I know moustache drag and beard drag's back It's coming again. back it's now, yeah. You know, What's moustache? Yeah, I just do it facial hair. And, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And then I got jobs in not gay venues. I, I couldn't get a job in a gay venue, really. I got jobs in straight nightclubs. Okay. Because I'd worked in fashion. Owners of the hotel, of the nightclubs, one of them was Inflation, which was in King Street. If you look mm-hmm. at Inflation now, it's probably a dump. But at the time, <laughs> it was huge because it was the first club to have laser lighting and, right. and videos Ooh. and the whole thing. It was very, <laughs> it was full on, you know. It opened with a bang and t- at the same time there was Studio 54, mm-hmm. you know, America. It was mm-hmm. the same idea. Yeah, right. You had to have the crowd out the front and, you know, the whole poof thing that happened a few weeks ago with people being, being exclusive. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. well, that was like that. We had gorgeous girls on the outside. Mm-hmm. I was gorgeous myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a man, this is before I had my sex change yeah. put in in 76. <laughs> <laughs> but they had the pretty girls out the front saying, you can come, you can come, and you go. That's just the way it was. So right. what we witnessed a few weeks ago was happening yeah, early, right. you mm-hmm. know, it wasn't something new. Yeah. Anyway, cut a long story short, they did, uh, owners decided to put on a gay night, mm. and it, it took off basically straight away. Wednesday night, it was $8 to get in, and you got free wine. That's, you're getting the picture <laughs> That's here. The <laughs> That's free, what I want. Gosh, imagine it, that. It was free wine. And, you know, so the drink of the, of the time was white wine and orange juice. Okay. I, I, of course, went white wine and dry ginger. Of oh, course. No. But through that, we had people like Divine came. She oh, appeared. Really? Wow. We had the village people. But when the village people came, the, the a lot of the bands were doing this. Boy George, all that was around. And they were doing New Romantic. That was, the, you know, all the guys were wearing lipstick and, uh, you know, eyeshadow and all yeah. that kind of thing. So the village people all of a sudden had mascara on and lipstick and blush and mm-hmm. it was it was a whole different it wasn't the leather man that I remember yeah. you know it was a whole different thing it was more so of a gender bending kind of thing it was, that's yeah. what it was I didn't start doing drugs until and I, you know I was never I've never been a drug taker ever yeah. you know and I didn't realise until when I was watching Underbelly on TV. Oh yeah, because I'd worked at all. Oh, that all that stuff was going on. (laughs) No, the thing is that because I'd worked at the Cadillac Bar and I worked at Zuzu's, and outside of all of these places I worked, there were hot dog stands. I used to go and just buy hot dogs. I didn't know you bought your drugs there. (laughs) I was I was having hot dog after hot dog. God, these are good. But it wasn't until I watched that, and I and one of the guys who actually ran those hot dogs also worked at one of the places in security that Mm -hmm. I went, and he was one of the guys that was actually. Shot right, you know. So wow. it was all kind of. And all I, I, stuff going I, on. I was working there, but didn't realize all this was happening around me. I've been trying to spin the show into a true crime show <laughs> for many, <laughs> many months. So I'm happy to take this interview in that direction. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And then, so you see, your family didn't really know about it. Then, did you ever tell your family? Well, uh, my sister and my brother and, and that knew. I mean, I, uh, you know, but it was a different time, mm. and I, I actually really sort of came out pretty late Mm -hmm. really Uh, you know I wasn't very good at coming out (laughs) I I just I didn't have a particularly great relationship with my father he was a a a shocking drinker right now perhaps the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree But he, there is a difference between someone that can, like yourself, that works in the scene and that sort of thing. Well, he and, was at violence. Yeah, too, right, yeah. Which, it, there was never much closeness there. And I, he was a footballer. And I, I hate sport. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I've never liked it. It must be why I like that. you. <laughs> Do you know well, what I mean? I, I, so, and I was never very good at it anyway. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a closeness there, basically. Right. And then my mother, um, uh, they separated. Mm-hmm. I, I was close to her. My mother died from emphysema and I was working at the... Three Faces oh, at the time. Moment, and I'd yeah. been down, my mother was in hospital, and I'd been down to see her. And it was very strange because we were never a real kissy, kissy kind of family, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah, it wasn't. not very affectionate. No, yeah. no. We, I'm still not even too much with my brother or the, my, the other two sisters. Yeah. And I'll never forget this day because I basically kissed her, and, and I never sort of kissed her. This is really getting emotional now. Mm. And uh, anyway, I get back yeah. to... Uh, where I lived, I was living in Paran, and there's a note on the on the door from the police, and they said she died. 
Oh, wow. it was just. So I don't want That's to so cool. talk yeah. about them. Yeah, yeah no, but yeah, thank you so much for sharing yeah, that. That you. is, thank you, yeah, yeah. so much. Um, on a, on a lighter note, yeah. <laughs> drag has evolved so much since you started. Yeah, for better or worse, what would you say are some of the bigger changes you've noticed? Well, I think the thing is, I think the internet changed everything. Yeah. really. Firstly, when we were doing it at like Exchange or at any of those places, you could go out out mm. any night of the week and mm. it would be chock-a-block with so people. so true, yeah. You know, Wednesday night would have a couple of hundred people at the exchange and then those people would go down to the uh, Three Faces mm. and then there was little... Pub- when Commercial Road was really jumping, mm-hmm. you had the Beat Bookshop, you had Hairs uh, mm. and Hyenas, oh, yeah. all these, you know, the whole pl- that whole strip was magical, you know, and people went out. Now, of course, with the internet, they don't go out. Mm. It's hard enough to get people out on a Saturday night. Mm. When... I was at uh, Three Faces. And now Thursday night it was a really big night. You get about 800 people out. It was two floors. And the show was called The Lipsticks. I'll tell you later how I got into it because that's another story. But um, there was Kerry Lagore, myself, Dorian Manganini and Zoe Knox. But people would come because, you know, that was their night out. Yeah. They absolutely loved it. You know, they thought they, they knew us, mm. you know. And if they didn't come on that night, mm. they'd be very, very disappointed for the week. Mm. In this time, you've got the AIDS crisis as well happening. So people needed to forget about that for a minute. And that's what the drag shows did. It made them forget, brought everybody close together. The drag has an amazing ability to do that, really. What effect did the AIDS crisis have on the drag scene in Melbourne? A lot of the stories that I've heard, are, whilst it was an awful thing that was happening, are actually quite positive stories of the community sort of banding together. I think that 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 is really true. The thing is that, there, there were benefits. There was all these fundraisers and things mm. like that. And the drag really got behind it. They were the positive things. And I think the thing about, you know, if people, I, I know when they used to come up to me at, at the hotel, I'd be sitting there at the bar and, you know, they, because they see you, they think they know you, yeah. you know, and they can talk to you about yeah. things. Well, you know, I, I couldn't get my life together and I'm trying to help these other people, yeah. people you know. And, yeah. and, the, and, and that's just the way it was, mm. you know, and you just do it. And we all got behind it. That's your job to do as well, mm. you know. That's just part and parcel of what you do. Yeah. The drag queens really were sort of almost the mascots of the community or, in a way and, and, and were mm. doing these wonderful benefits mm. and fundraisers and that sort of thing and probably keeping people's spirits up. Well, I think vibe, a, I and along the way, you know, you had groups like also and these other groups that had these great big warehouse pages which is now the, at, the, at the Docklands. Oh, yeah. You yep. know, there, there were literally thousands of people there having the most amazing times. And I remember doing that. I did so many of them. I was always stuck in the middle. Male dancers, it was 20 male dancers because I can't dance. You know? <laughs> really? <laughs> no, Candy? No. <laughs> I know you're not going to believe that. <laughs> But the really sad thing for me about that, the end of the night, you, you're there with all these bags trying to, you know those awful Chinese laundry bags? Those oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> full of <laughs> trash. That's the hideous. Yeah. Every drag queen has got a hundred of them. Yeah. Oh it's gosh. just the worst things. And you're trying to get home. You're on your own then to try and, yeah. they love you when you're on stage, but my God, to try and get anyone to help you along the way. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty horrible. Something I really like about drag is that it's, sort of always political and there's often an element of punk rebellion for a lot of drag artists you know pushing up against what's happening in society at the time around this time with the crisis did you see that have any effect on the drag that people did you know the thing is that the kind of drag that we did was nothing like what happens now you know it was drag with a sense of humor Mm. most of it you Mm -hmm. know now people will see RuPaul and they'll, they, they, and I get it, you know, mm. they will go on, online and they'll buy the wig, the shoes, the dress and all that, but you can't buy talent. Mm. Well, uh, it does It does lead into addressing probably mm-hmm. the big pink glittery elephant whenever you talk <laughs> about drag is the popularity of RuPaul's Drag Race. It has changed people's perception of drag in the mainstream. Mm. It's also broadened its audience to, I think, a different demographic than what it was in the past. Is it something that you can get behind or do you think it's it's a dilution of the art form that you've experienced? I mean, I, I get it. I watched the first few couple of series and then I just, I just went off it. But I, I understand. I think the good thing about it is the fact that it has become, you know, across the board, straight people are watching and understanding and hearing the backstories of these people. Mm. I think the thing about it, about drag just generally, is there are always backstories that mm. you never hear. You see the person, but you don't see what's really behind. Mm. And people think you're something that you're absolutely not. Absolutely. So I think the good thing about that is we are, we are getting the world to see these people. 
yeah. and their stories. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. The people that are performing aren't going to affect me. The type of audience that I attract is a different kind of audience than they attract. But in, in some ways, it can also be seen as a gateway. You know, a lot of people yeah. talk about... RuPaul th- is a gateway <laughs> drug. And I think RuPaul's Drag Race can be a gateway drug to Queens Like Candy. You, yeah, you, yeah, you know, It's a yeah. way for people... I mean, I would say that your Saturday night show at DT's over the last couple of years has started attracting more and more younger people oh, we do. as well. Yeah, we do. Which are probably people that may not have seen drag mm-hmm. until they saw something like RuPaul's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. I think that's the thing. Uh, but without a bit of comedy in, in a drag show, oh, yeah. it, it is absolutely... Yeah. Dry. Oh, God. You know, it all looks the same. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's got to be personality. If you've got, it's important as you look going on the stage looking beautiful mm, yeah. with no personality. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Know. I mean, for any listeners that haven't seen you perform before, you're not a dancer, but you yeah. do these dance shows yeah. with Rita LaCocita and Sue Ridge, yeah. and you've been doing them for decades. Yeah. And then what I love about you is that you don't always get the dance moves right, <laughs> but you always have that cheeky little wink to the audience oh, when you get it wrong thing. and you have a little giggle and you're on a microphone. Yeah. Hilarious, which but is, is I, I want people to be in on the gag, yes. basically. Yeah. And I think in a drag show, you've got to have a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's very difficult to have an end when there's no big bang on the, on the number or anything. So then you've got to get on the microphone and say something funny. Yeah. To, yeah. To, 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 I think that's so much better. It shows more personality. Absolutely. Well, I think yeah. that's the whole thing. And um, your and your shtick is very much that you're a bloke in a dress. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's funny. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. what you're there to see, yeah. I think. But along the way, I've had some pretty camp experiences I think I did a couple of very bad movies <laughs> oh, no really way. I didn't know this yeah I did one called Done to Death right oh. and it was a like a schlock horror thing yeah. I love and that and we, we used to hunt uh, us down <laughs> no, well, yeah, it, yeah so I did that and then I got when Priscilla Queen of the Desert came out oh, yes. everybody then wanted Priscilla's at their, right, <laughs> at yeah. their, you oh, know, yeah. their New Year's Eve party or yeah. their Christmas party or their bar mitzvah or wherever. So probably yeah. it into So we were getting culture. so much work. Yeah, wow. You know, we were just like, I remember a, a New Year's Eve, we had about like four different gigs mm-hmm. and one of them we actually did the show twice and I paid us double. Oh, oh. It was just <laughs> stupid. A lot of your Aussie drag sisters uh, are now doing major commercial campaigns. Art Simone and Filmer Box are doing the Amy ads yeah. and Polly Filler did, was it Domain.com I think she did? Yeah. yeah. That's four, yes. Karen from Finance is just selling a box to any company that'll take <laughs> oh, it. Absolutely. But you were one of the, the pioneers in Australia because you did the Telstra. I remember the Telstra prepaid Phone cards. cards. My God, yeah. you really are showing your age. I am, I know. Uh, the, Late yeah, 90s. It, it was, yeah, yeah, it was big at the time. You know they had those bake-off fundraisers. Oh, like the DTs Midsummer bake-off yeah. sort of stuff. And I went yeah. to one of them and the guy who ran... Telstra was there and he liked me. The next day I get a phone call and he says, will you come and do one photo for Big Pond? I didn't right. even know what Big uh, Pond was. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? So I'm saying, oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Not knowing what Big Pond <laughs> was. Anyway, so we do this photo and it's me with a fish out of my mouth. Oh, yeah. You know, a poster. It lasted for about two years or three mm-hmm. years. There was about four photos and I remember them flying me up to Sydney for Mardi Gras because at that stage Telstra sponsored Mardi Gras. Right, yeah. They didn't have a float or anything. Mm. They weren't that brave. Mm-hmm. And I remember Would have been seeing, one of the first big organisations to yeah, do it was. so, yeah. And I drove round Taylor's Square and I look up and here's this billboard of me. Oh, wow. It was kind of like, <laughs> unbelievable because yeah. it was the thing from the postcard. It was a really beautiful shot. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned your character... Loves drinking beer. Yeah. I see you've got some water on you today. You're staying <laughs> hydrated. Absolutely. Obviously, it's it's a draining job and industry to be a part of. You're looking quite fit and trim and, and mm. youthful sitting here. Do you have any precautions you could give to either, say, younger drag queens getting into the industry, being surrounded by booze and flashing lights and yeah. drugs? I mean, I'm the wrong one to ask. Yeah, <laughs> I basically <laughs> did all those things mm-hmm. yeah. in the 80s, the 90s, 2000. That's what they And 80s I should be absolutely a basket case now. <laughs> I should be drag roadkill. Oh my God. <laughs> you know. But I, I didn't. I didn't really do drugs. I mean, I, you know, that was not. But I, I mean, I drank a lot of beer and all of that. And I'm not ashamed of anything that I've done. I'm not ashamed of any of the photos that appear of me. And, and that was all just part and parcel. Mm. That you know, people come up to me still at the hotel. And I had someone in the, come to the shop where I work today, and they say, you know. God, they were great times. They were fantastic mm. times, and all of that. And they were great times. So they were fantastic times. I don't live in the past, and mm. I think, and I say to these people, I say, you know, these are the new memories. These are the new fabulous times that mm. they're having it's right a very now. Good point, yeah. You know, 
for those dra- young drag queens, you really ask, are the, asking the wrong person. <laughs> yes. I've done it. But you it's- have done well, though, Candy, because I think realistically, a lot of them do take drugs occasionally and do drink, but don't let that overtake their life. Uh, drinking beer, I wasn't the only one doing it. Everybody was doing mm. it. You know, mm. the 80s yeah. and the 90s, there'd be a bucket of beer in the in the dressing, dressing room. room. Oh, That's yeah. just the way it was. You know? It's just not a drink I would picture a drag queen's drink of you choice. You need to come to Big <laughs> Bowl and beer on a sandwich. Like, that's so weird. Saturday night, right. Miss Candy yeah. there with we, a, we, we a VB with a, a straw VB. in it. Oh, yeah. so true. Well, we all did it, you yeah. know. Yeah. I think that was just the drink of the moment, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's so cool to, to hear you talking about... Uh, I mean, I get to see Candy on stage all the time, and that's fantastic and mm. very camp and very funny. But it's so nice to hear you sort of sitting down and talking about 40 years ago, a time that was completely different to what we have now. Mm. And I'm really interested to hear about some of the relationships that you forged with the amazing queens that you've worked with throughout the years. Mm. Who are the queens that, you know, really have stuck... Like, memories that you've really stuck with you, the best people to work with or the most amazing performers? Well, well I've, I've worked with some really, really fantastic people. I've mm. worked with some real assholes. Yeah. <laughs> you know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> oh. uh, the people Team. I loved was Kerry Lagore because Kerry Lagore yeah. really changed the way the gay scene was. Mm. I mean, she worked uh, uh, at all of the venues mm. and she really got all the drag queens together and put them in big shows the venue owners have been fantastic mm-hmm. as well. I think they're the unsung heroes. But you're also remembering that this was a time when there was a cover charge. Mm-hmm. Now you put, try to put a cover charge on somewhere and nobody will turn up. Yeah. But the cover charge paid for the costumes. It paid yeah. for the hair. It paid for the lighting. It paid for the, the mm-hmm. whole thing. You know, uh, Barbara Quickstad, of course. Sue Ridge. Yeah, that's a great name. Uh, <laughs> Sue Ridge. Oh, my God. Oh, Tabitha, I love yeah. And I'm so glad Tabitha's come out of retirement. Uh, yes, yeah, I mean, I gave uh, Rita her name when she... She first right. got into drag. I said, you've got to have something really posh that sounds fantastic. It's going to look it's great on, a, on a marquee. Oh. Rita Lacocke. Uh, Rita Oh, my La God. Cockita. Is that the full name? Yeah. Oh, Rita my God. It's well, everybody was doing it was like, Someone like Gay or Lagore, yeah, you know, right. or like it was Kerry Lagore. Can you just talk a little bit more about Kerry Lagore for the younger people that don't know? Kerry? Well, Kerry Lagore was she was great at organising things. Mm. She was responsible for putting all those shows that all those different groups, yeah. like p- people like Paris, Rita, me, all of those girls I mentioned, the ones that are still around, the yeah. high-profile ones. Because, you know, in drag, many are called, few are chosen. Yes. They don't last very long. And she did the Kerry, it was Kerry's Backyard at the yeah. Exchange. And if anyone that's interested in looking it up, the effort that went into this show, they would film uh, sketches that would then be shown on the TV screens there and Pussy, Willow and all those sorts of people were Everybody. in these wonderful videos, little sketches that they would pre-record. Oh. Yeah. that would yeah. be shown in between numbers while a costume change was happening or at the start of the show or whatever. Yeah. Awesome. And um, someone um, is doing a wonderful job of currently uploading all of those. I think that's Kevin. Kevin, I mean, right, yeah. for who used to own the exchange. And he actually used to do the videos as well. Right. And like, so there's a, yeah, I can't remember what the website is, but Google Exchange History, yeah, I think it's It's really, called. like, for people who haven't sort of, perhaps the young people that are listening, it's kind of nice to go back and sort of see what, how it all started. And how much effort went into it. Because it's different. Okay, this is different, but I think the other things, oldest are still valid as well. Absolutely. I think, you know, we're still Mm -hmm. valid, even though... We might be 30 years older or 20 or 50 years older. (laughs) (laughs) So we have spent a lot of time talking about Miss Candy, but the difference between your character and Ron, you know, your day-to-day out-of-drag sort of persona as well, you know, who is Ron? I mean, sometimes the two people do cross over. (laughs) And I don't mean, you know, sometimes I can be sitting at a... Basically, I'm pretty shy. I think that, okay, you, you create the character you do things and say things that you would never say. Mm-hmm. For instance, I don't swear mm-hmm. as oh, a man. Yeah. I, I hate it. I hate yeah. that kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. In drag. Sailors, I, man. Swear yes. like do you, do you like, like change your voice or anything like that no, in no. drag character? No, or? I don't. I, I've always worked in clothing and retail, and I've been lucky enough to travel th- through that as well. You know, I, I had a job where I was traveling overseas twice a year, mm. still doing drag, but I used to go to London, Paris, Milan, and, wow. you know, it was fantastic. So people don't know that about me. Mm. They just yeah. see mm. this sort of trash bag racing, <laughs> around, <laughs> racing no. around the. So I, I've always been able to have a steady job mm. yeah. the drag hasn't sort of taken over although it's taken over the house yeah. yes. that's always the way it is you know mm. I don't really have a lot of friends. I've got a lot of Facebook friends, but yeah. <laughs> I've never met them. I mean, I'm still close to my family. I, I, I am. And the few friends that I've got, I sort of try to see as often as I, I can. 
I, I don't have a partner. I think I would like to have one, but I'm leading my run a bit low. <laughs> I was going to ask for any listeners that no. might be a little bit turned on. Well, you know. I think the thing is, I think it would be very hard to actually date somebody like me. Mm-hmm. First thing, I'm, I like being alone. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm very much a loner as yeah. well. I've always been that. So, but I think just. Dating a drag queen is would be a pretty horrible experience. <laughs> well, this show reaches a couple of thousand people, I think, every week. Okay. So you're putting that. We'll, we'll, we'll pop some we pictures out. Add on. We'll, yeah. we'll make your Tinder profile. <laughs> we'll just add the sound effect yeah. now. Miss Candy, can I say it has been such an honour to have you oh here to talk you. to us today. I've enjoyed you are it. drag royalty in Australia. And uh, it's so nice to have a conversation with you outside of the smoking area, DTs. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining My us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Thank guys. you for coming. Thank here. you. I could listen to you yeah, all day, honestly. Like, so mesmerizing. Of course, you can catch Miss Candy at Big Bold and Bitter on Saturday nights at DT's Hotel. Free entry. What time's the first show, Candy? The first shows are t- 10 o'clock drag time, which is 10.30. <laughs> uh, and two shows. We've got great costumes. And, and, it, and, and uh, there's a really good mixed crowd there as it's well. It's a lovely so you crowd. Can come and have a really nice time. We'll great. see you there. Fantastic. You. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So we've got another guest for this episode, and I'm really happy to welcome Nick Hollis joining us in the studio to talk about some serious issues. Thank you so much so for having So thrilled to have you. Yeah. We've quoted you so many times and read so many things that you've written on this podcast, so oh it's nice gosh. to finally have you here. Oh, I know that. Which I'm sure you know because you've listened to every oh, episode. Oh, religiously. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> so just to start off, Nick, you're the founder of the Institute of Many, or TIM. Now, that's a place where people who are living with HIV, to give a bit more info, can find support online, in person. For the listeners who may not be that familiar with your work, um, could you let us know a little bit more about Tim? Sure, absolutely. Well, Tim is a lot of things to a lot of different people, which is why I love it. Like it's it's a grassroots movement for people living with HIV. We're the largest of our kind in Australia. We have members from around Australia and overseas as well. For some people, it is just a private Facebook group that they use to find peer support, ask questions, get feedback, share news and information about living mm. with HIV. And for others, it's a movement that they've been a part of uh, anywhere between you know a day to several years and we do activism we do campaigns we do resources for people and you know we march in Mardi Gras every year and it's turned into well it's turned into the most important thing I've done with my life but it's also become this invaluable platform for us to bring HIV into the 21st century yeah as a person that's not living with HIV but reading a lot about it I I guess I can't really speak from the perspective of someone that's used him but what I like when I read about it is there I feel like there's a lot of support groups and not just in in the HIV universe but for lots of different community subcultures I guess Mm -hmm. that are either split down to sort of the medical side of it or the social side of it and what I really like about Tim is there's both of those options or both of those things if you want to have Mm -hmm. one or the other or both well that's like so important because obviously what unites all people living with hiv is that we live with Mm. hiv and that is a chronic medical condition Mm, you know some of us vote one way some of us vote another um, but what unites us all is this condition so we need a space as peers where we can talk about you know changing treatments or Mm. side effects Mm. but also the broader social issues around hiv yeah. One of the things we talked about with um, Dr. George last week was how people find the right doctor for them. Is that something that you sort of find people are doing with the group, giving advice for people that have recently been diagnosed with HIV about which doctors they've been to or which ones they think would be helpful with? Absolutely. And look, and that's we're really fortunate living here in the, the bubble of inner city Melbourne that we have so many fantastic yeah. HIV specialist GPs. We've got one, you know, I've got 
expert clinics on both sides of the river even. And, you know, up in Sydney, it's the it's same. very rare that something happens on both sides of yeah. the river in so Melbourne. <laughs> Other than Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but these days, obviously, living with HIV goes outside of that bubble. Mm. So, whilst it's super important that our members can talk about which clinic is best for them and what kind of doctor might suit their needs, you know, you step outside of that. You go to outer suburban Melbourne where it's a total schlep to get into Northside Clinic, yeah, for example, yeah, yeah. And, and let alone people who live in rural and regional mm. Australia who have maybe one S100 doctor, that's the doctor yeah. who can prescribe mm. your HIV meds, or they've got to go two towns over or something like that. So mm. it's really complex finding that level of care and support because I know for a fact, I mean, I was almost diagnosed with HIV out in regional Australia and the GP I met knew nothing about right, HIV, okay. let alone gay sex or anything like that. So yeah, it can be really awkward. Mm. And with the introduction of PrEP as a preventative strategy for contracting HIV, which has been an absolute game changer in our community, as someone living with HIV, what is your view on PrEP? Well, firstly, I think we are so fortunate to be living in an era that we have PrEP. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When, when I, I mean, if during the very height of the AIDS crisis in the 80s and early 90s, if you turned to the gay community and said, oh, by the way, we've got this pill you can take that's going to prevent you mm. acquiring mm. HIV, there would be absolutely no conversation. Mm. We would be mm. rushing to get it. That's it. But of course, things have changed so much since that time. I think that we are really fortunate to be in the year of PrEP because now we have so many tools in the toolbox. Mm. You know, we have PrEP, we've got U equals U, and we've got condoms, and they all work really well. Mm. And the exciting thing is they don't have to work in isolation. Mm. You know, you can be on PrEP and still use condoms. I also think that it is a testament to the extraordinary success of people affected by HIV and people living with HIV fighting for safe sex, fighting for condoms. We were so good at that that it's taken hold in such a way that for some people letting go of the idea that condoms Mm. are the best form of protection and thus the only form is really difficult Mm. for those people. And the most important thing is it's like, just don't yuck anyone's yum. That's Mm. my big thing around that condom versus everything else. It doesn't have to be so adversarial. Sorry, just you mentioned U equals U, which is Mm. probably a term that not everybody is familiar with yet, unfortunately. Can you expand a little bit more? Of course. Uh, So when I talk about U equals U, what I mean there is undetectable equals untransmittable, Mm. which means that when a person living with HIV can access effective treatment, uh, it means that there is zero risk of them passing HIV onto their Mm. partners. That is a very bigger, important thing for people. Oh my to god, and it, and it's a bigger. I can swear on this podcast, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a bigger <laughs> mindfuck than prep and condoms. Even yeah. the the notion that people living with HIV are not infectious Mm -hmm. is a massive psychological thing for us to get our heads around whether you're living with HIV or not. Mm. So we have these three things now. They all work really well. And it upsets me to see us pitting them against one another. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to this in a second, but the events of the last week or so have really highlighted for me that there is a cohort of gay men who are on PrEP. They are using it to protect themselves from acquiring HIV, which mm-hmm. is great. That's what it's for. But PrEP is also amazing because it has the ability to free us from our serophobia, our mm-hmm. irrational yeah. fear of people living with HIV and HIV itself. It makes me sad to see that there is this cohort of, of gay men on PrEP who aren't using PrEP to untangle themselves from their yeah. HIV stigma. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's just not giving yourself the full experience. Mm. Like, it's it's like watching Drag Race without watching Untucked. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're, yeah. you've got to give yourself the full story. Yeah. And um, it's so great that we have that ability to do that. Mm. I recognize HIV is such a massive thing. It hangs over us as mm. a community. Mm. So, you understand where people arrive at this mm. serophobia and, and how difficult it is. But... PrEP is that entry point for people. I yeah. always find it really interesting. I mean, we just had Miss Candy on the podcast as well and, and talking about, like, you know, working in the scene um, during the AIDS epidemic and mm. stuff. I find it really interesting that the people that lived through that seem to have less of a fear of HIV than the people that have been born since. I, I, and it breaks my heart that a lot of younger people, and it seems to get exponentially worse, but the younger people are and the further away we are from the AIDS epidemic, that that stigma seems to be growing. in the. Do you, do you see that? Uh, I see it in so many ways and it takes different forms and I can see the opposite happen as well. There mm. are people who went through the AIDS crisis 
we, none of us, none of us we can can't actually talk it, yeah. about it or really understand it fully, the, the, the degree of trauma that those elders experienced. And I see some of them doubling down on their serophobia. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they are some of the quickest to talk about PrEP. You've got to use condoms because mm-hmm. they were there fighting. They were there fighting yeah. for, our, for our rights to be able to access condoms. Yeah, so true. you understand where that went through. And then as well, you do see younger people who are so far away from the AIDS crisis. And I mean, like literally, there are 19-year-olds on the scene right now who were born in this millennium. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I should freak us all out. It's terrifying. Um, God bless them. And good luck to them. But they're not even millennially attracted uh, to the AIDS crisis in the way that the rest of us were. And that's also really important for us to consider. Why should these younger people need to feel dragged down and weighed down by the AIDS crisis in the way that certain older generations mm. are. So I get that. I, I, we want them to feel, feel liberated, um, from, liberated yeah. from all of that. Otherwise, what are we just dragging them down mm-hmm. with previous traumas? Mm-hmm. Conversely, this wasn't something that was 100 years ago. No, that's, yeah. People that's are still alive yeah. that are feeling the impact of that crisis, whether you lived through the AIDS crisis or you grew up underneath it. So multiple considerations there. I think... Um, what we are seeing amongst some younger gay men is that they are reaching this kind of era of sexual experimentation and sex positivity a lot earlier than their older gay friends from even like five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. So you typically, you could arrive at that late 20s, early 30s, dirty 30 kind of mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. And that's where we were seeing the bread and butter of new HIV infections. It right. wasn't 21-year-olds who were acquiring HIV at a rapid rate. It was this yeah. 30 to 40-something. Yeah, okay. And that was a lot too with condom fatigue to yeah. 10 years plus of safe sex messaging that you're like, well, oh, maybe I can start taking risks. Yeah. PrEP has helped these younger queer men arrive at this point of sex-positive sex exploration earlier. And it's so exciting to see. Like, this is... It feels like it's we're kind of going back mm-hmm. to gay lib era in the 70s. Mm. And we can reimagine that chunk of time that we Mm. lost in our acceleration generationally i also remember being a child of the 90s Mm. hiv was a big boogeyman Mm. for the gay community and being young at that time that was sort of the go-to way to suppress our community to scare our community still is for a lot of people but yeah i think that mentality was really hard for me to get out of as well and Mm. prep was a big thing in that that it seemed like some science fictiony kind of thing because suddenly this boogeyman that the mainstream media had sort of been trying to frighten you with for Mm. years Mm. was suddenly, you know, not something that was going to pop out and surprise you. Mm, and and, Bowl you down in a bowling alley. Yeah, Yeah, so I I think there were a lot of gay men from that generation that grew up with that. It's about untangling and Mm. and that can be a really tricky thing. Do you think that that was... An essential, I mean, obviously now there's a, mm. a lot of work being done to undo this mind frame that people had from the time. Is it your opinion that that was an essential thing for them to do at the time because there was no other way of, they didn't really know what they were dealing with and that was the only way of doing it? It was such a complex time. I think, I mean, if you go back and look at the campaign, which is the Grim mm. Reaper campaign. Yeah, but there was um, a whole yeah. lot of others that were yeah. like similar vibes. Lots, yeah. of, uh, lots of other public awareness campaigns. They were successful when the people affected by HIV were central in creating the messaging. When things got a bit broader or out of our control, it got harder. So then mm. we ended up with the Grim Reaper, yeah, right. which a lot of people don't know. One of the people that came up with the Grim Reaper campaign was Ida Buttrose. Oh, really? Gay icon. I yeah, thought you were really? going to say the Grim Reaper was gay. There was a disastrous Glam Reaper campaign that tried to reinvigorate the Ooh. notion a few years ago. Uh, check it out. It's was online it in Australia? Somewhere. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we yeah, bungle yeah. it so yeah. badly. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes and no. Like there, It was such a hard time because yeah. in the early days, people were just throwing something on the wall and hoping it yeah, would stick. Yeah. And yeah, but these days, these days we're having to work, I think, extra hard mm. because it felt like for a long time we didn't talk about this enough. Mm. There wasn't anything to report. Like in 1996, which, you know, some of you might even be younger than that. Uh, no, definitely no, not. Okay. <laughs> that was a compliment. Take that as a compliment. <laughs> I wasn't looking at you Kyle's when not, I said that. Kyle's not here for this interview. So. <laughs> But in 1996, the treatments for HIV changed forever. We had Mm. that magical turning point. It wasn't magical. It was a scientific turning point for HIV treatments. We are now further from 1996 than we are from 1982-ish, the start of the virus. Wow, yeah, that's a good point. And yet here we still are Mm. having to convince people 
that U equals U works, mm. convince people that HIV does not equal AIDS. And it speaks to, I think, the incredible pernicious impact that AIDS has had on our collective consciousness as human mm. beings. And you think that that's everyone. That's going out to suburban whatever, and country town whatever, yeah. and talking about HIV, they'll think about yeah. AIDS. What it must feel like for all of us to know that HIV is associated with us as people, mm. as a community, this will take generations to untangle. Mm. But, yeah, it's it's. I'm glad the work's happening. Yeah. So for those listeners that are unaware of, of the events that have happened in the last few weeks, um, as we've talked about before, there's only ever been a, a handful of recorded cases globally where PrEP users have gone on to contract HIV. Mm. And the most recent case was the subject of an interview which you conducted in the wonderful Star Observer last week with Steve Spencer, who is probably the second most quoted person on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, Steve's the guy that, for anyone that's been to Gay Times Festival, we traditionally pull the first ball of Granny Bingo out of Steve. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> wonderful person. <laughs> so Steve was on PrEP and contracted HIV in December and then came out wonderfully by hosting the, the Tim float at Mardi Gras and did that wonderful Facebook po- post as well. What kind of stuff did Steve want to talk about and, and sort of make clear to people um, about his case in, in the interview? Yeah, it was, I mean, firstly, whenever we talk about this, I think it's really important to put in context that we're talking about someone who's recently been diagnosed with HIV. That experience has changed so much over the years, but what doesn't change is the shock that you realize that your life has changed forever. Mm -hmm. How fortunate we are that it means your life has changed forever, not that you're going to die. So that's a really great thing. Steve and I talked a lot about this over the last couple of months, knowing that this was going to happen, knowing that he wanted to come out publicly, which I obviously supported, knowing that it would attract a lot of questions, fair share of criticism, possibly even a fair bit of projected anxiety towards Mm. him for doing this. But this is the second case of a person seroconverting whilst on PrEP in Australia. Different circumstances to the Melbourne incident that happened a couple of years ago, but different also because that person they have never really been able to come out about that experience. Right. Mm-hmm. But when the word got out that this had happened two years ago in Melbourne, I'm sure you all remember it was all over Facebook mm, yeah. in the Melbourne community and went national. And that person was unable to even defend themselves, yeah. speak up. And here they were, a newly diagnosed person living with HIV, trying Being to wrestle with the fact yeah. that they were at this centre and everyone was discussing their mm. lifestyle choices with having no mm. concept of even who they are. Mm. And then you've got Steve, who is the opposite of that. Mm. <laughs> I couldn't think... Uh, yeah. It's not many people who, you know, would consent to having the first bingo ball pulled out of them out of <laughs> at Granny, Granny Bingo. bingo yeah. But Steve is absolutely that person. Yeah. And we have been comrades in, in kind of highly visible HIV discussion for mm. years. And I think he knew that he couldn't just come out to his friends and, and potential lovers on Scruff and Grinder and mm. whatever and because because he was that poster boy yeah, yeah. and he needed to be able to declare it so that he could live authentically. Yeah. The other part of it, and this is super important, is that he wanted to be able to come out and talk about the facts of why prep works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That he wasn't questioning it Mm. he believes in prep he continues to believe in prep he knows it works and the other thing too i'm pretty sure he wanted to celebrate the fact that as a person living with hiv he arrived at having an undetectable viral load yeah within the classic six Six week period and was feeling really good about that too so ultimately it was a good news story Yeah, yeah absolutely i think for me reading that both steve's original post and then your interview i don't want to blow smoke up Steve's ass, although I'm sure that would be very easy to do. But um, <laughs> I think I've seen I, that I, I, I just got this overwhelming sense of how selfless it was to having been diagnosed only in December and then still wanting to share all this information with people and give them the full set of facts with how successful PrEP is, even though it's what some people call a PrEP failure. Mm. Yeah, I was really blown away at, at that. And, and, and you conducted such a wonder, wonderful interview with him as well. Um, so well done to you and well done to Steve yeah. on that. Thank fact. you. Oh, look, it's, it's, it's really really all of Steve I think that um there is a transactional cost to living so openly yeah and I kind of feel a, a bit of empathy for Steve although the situation in which I came out publicly as a person living with HIV a few years ago is so different to what it is now mm-hmm. we didn't have prep even it's only been 6 years since I came out as pos in hello mister and stuff but so I was I was also interested to see at where community sentiment is at mm, with yeah. Steve's um announcement too mm. After interviewing Steve, how do you feel like the reaction has been to the interview and like what feedback have you gotten? I want to say overwhelmingly it's been 
really supportive. I nearly said it's yeah. really positive. If I had a dollar for every time I made that <laughs> pun. It's been really supportive. The number of people commenting at Steve's bravery yeah. and how this is really important to remind people that, you know, prep is 99% effective. Mm-hmm. It's triggered a really fantastic conversation in the community, I think, amongst people. I have also been confronted, I think, with the number of gay men at risk of HIV and some living with HIV who have shown their fear and anxiety and serophobia through this. And that's what's prompted me to to reflect on just how many gay men on PrEP Mm -hmm. aren't using PrEP to untangle themselves from their serophobia. People do panic. Some people have tried to claim that, you know, this is irresponsible of us to be sharing this story, but it happened. Mm. It's a thing that actually exists. Like, people need to know that PrEP is 99% effective. There are going to be these people. And it's also prompted some really interesting interesting discussions about PrEP on demand, which not a lot of people Mm. knew about. Speaking of PrEP on demand, where a person takes PrEP before and after sex as opposed to taking it every day. Do we know if that's as effective as taking a daily pill? What we know from the studies about on-demand is that the level of protection it affords you from HIV is just as effective as daily PrEP, but it is in earlier stages than than what we know about daily PrEP. So Mm -hmm. that's one consideration. The majority of people on the IPAGAY, I love that it was called the IPAGAY study, Mm -hmm. um, in France where on-demand PrEP was kind of initially trialled, were having enough sex to necessitate on-demand prep in a way that meant they were kind of taking about, you know, four pills or so per week kind of vibe. Oh, I see. Yeah, right. So so this is a little bit different to say the person who has been on nothing for six months Mm -hmm. has sex once and takes two pills two hours prior to the sex and then one every day after until after the sex ends. Does that make sense? So that is where things are maybe a little bit questionable around this. And we should also point out, you know, the Kirby is investigating this on-demand incident. The great thing is we know prep works. We know daily prep works. We still have prep failures. Um, I hate the word failure. I should probably think of another word. But Mm -hmm. we have prep failures. Anomalies. Yeah, thank you. Um, (laughs) Snafus. Um, Hiccups. We have these when people are on daily prep too. So it's also important to remember that neither of these things are a silver bullet and that whilst the level of protection and for the half a million people on PrEP around the world Mm. to have three confirmed cases of daily PrEP failure and seven in total around the world that Mm. are being investigated, the numbers are so in low. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, in my mind, prior to PrEP being introduced, the only precaution method we had was condoms, which means technically you have to say that every HIV diagnosis prior to PrEP was a HIV failure if you think that this is a failure. Yeah. So if we've had seven cases out of how many did you say people? Five hundred thousand. Five hundred thousand people. That's a pretty good statistic. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about U equals U, and obviously HIV is no longer the death sentence that it once was. Medically speaking, what does it mean now to be living with HIV? For someone that's never met anyone that's that's living with HIV, what do you have to do to to stay um, U equals U and to stay healthy? Like how how much does it physically affect you? Is if that's not too personal a question. Of course. No, not at all. Well, I'll start with myself because mm-hmm. I'm kind of the most privileged example you can mm-hmm. get of a person living with HIV in that I live in inner city Melbourne. Mm-hmm. I'm an Australian citizen and I am you know, devastatingly attractive. Um, <laughs> um, so I get to go to a very nearby HIV specialist who gives me my prescription for my meds every six months. And then I toddle off to a nearby dispensing pharmacist. I could go to any pharmacy in Australia to collect it, which I don't pay for and I pick Mm. it up. So I'm in such a privileged position. I take one pill a day. It gives me zero side effects. It's always been that way. And that one pill a day maintains my undetectable viral load, which means that I have zero risk of passing on to my partner and... More importantly, although sometimes it doesn't feel that way, more importantly, it stops HIV in Mm, its tracks in my body to prevent me from going on to defining an AIDS-defining illness. If I stopped taking those medications today, in anywhere between five to ten years, I would be a person with AIDS-defining illnesses and I would eventually die. That's Mm -hmm. not stopping anytime soon. So that's me and my extraordinary privileged kind Mm -hmm. of background. Uh, As a person living with HIV, I'm still discriminated against in some legal Mm. contexts. I can still be accused of lying about my HIV status by a partner and that can result in me being charged. 
Wow. Even if I didn't pass HIV on to them, even if I have an undetectable viral load, although that's possibly changing, but a complaint could still be raised against me. Is that a, is that a federal law? It depends state by state wow. where you're at. Okay. But in every state in Australia, you can find yourself implicated legally wow. okay. as a person living that. with HIV. Yeah. We've got people in prisons at the moment in Australia for around stuff like that. So that, that risk is always there. And then, of course, there's just the ongoing stigma and discrimination yeah. that still pops up for all the reasons we're talking about. You know, in me, that manifests mainly on the apps. I'm a pretty open yeah. person about my yeah. HIV status. I'm also not super burnt by it, mm-hmm. but that's me. There are certainly people who feel differently. Yeah. Then, of course, once we broaden out beyond that circle of privilege, things get a lot harder and a lot more complex. Heterosexual people living with HIV in Australia are more likely mm-hmm. to be late diagnosed, which means they could have AIDS-defining illnesses. Uh, First Nations people living in uh, rural and remote communities in particular are falling through a, a horrific gap mm-hmm. in healthcare. And for your listeners, as you might not realise, but overseas-born gay and bisexual men, their HIV rates are going up while the general HIV right. rates are going down. And that's got a lot to do with appropriate and effective safe sex messaging and healthcare messaging mm-hmm. going to them. So, you know, international students in Melbourne, for example, are coming to Australia, finding a gay culture that maybe doesn't exist in a similar way mm-hmm. in their country of origin, but they're not being given the care and support that we mm. all take for granted because yeah, yeah, we all yeah. spot the Thorn Harbour Health ads on the side of a bus. Yeah. We know what it is. We connect mm-hmm. with it. We get the message. We might not do it every time, what they're asking in terms yeah. of condoms or taking yeah. prep or whatever, yeah, yeah. but we see the message and we know it's for us. I would love, uh, for my own legacy alone, I would love to yeah. be the last HIV positive poster boy who looks and sounds like me because mm-hmm. the epidemic doesn't look like me anymore. Mm-hmm. New HIV infections in a few years won't look like people that look like me. Yeah. I think our trans brothers and sisters and non-conforming siblings experience HIV in a completely different way. They get shut out of it in many ways. Mm. Uh, We're seeing small spikes in HIV transmission in lesbian communities as the queer community kind of finds itself in a new heightened era of of sex-positive poly activity. Queer women are jumping into bed with other queer people And that is a community that typically has been almost exclusively kept safe from the HIV uh, epidemic. And then, of course, there's all sorts of stuff when it comes to trans people. You know, the way that HIV can be transmitted to someone with a vagina or a front hole is different. The the tissue within a vagina has a different uh, absorption ability compared to the anal mucosa. Getting very technical here, everyone. (laughs) But it actually impacts how quickly prep works even, for example. And that sort of stuff isn't being studied widely enough. So we need trans people in more studies. Mm -hmm. We need them to be more active in the space. Mm -hmm. That's not from a want of trying on their part. It's up to researchers to get Mm -hmm. more involved and, and for campaigning messages to be way better. I think Australia has been fortunate in that our HIV response has been largely contained to gay and bisexual men in this country, even in other similar environments like the US or Canada. Mm -hmm. It's been much broader, but it's been really contained to gay men. And that's because sex workers worked really hard to prevent it spreading through their community here and injecting drug users lobbied really hard for safer injecting equipment. But what that means is we've had 30 years of talking to only gay and bi men Mm, and now we need to talk to more people. So we've got to change the message and who's got the microphone. Yeah, Yeah. right. Nick, I just want to say a big, big thank you for coming in and chatting with us today and giving us your expertise. We have to have you back again. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fascinating. It's It's been really good. Such a good chat. I'm offended that it's taken this long. (laughs) Thank you so much for the opportunity to come in. It it really means a lot. We're we're doing all we can to bring the entire community with us Mm. and conversations like this is where a lot of it starts. So thanks for having me. Great job. Thank Thank you, you, darling. Loves. Well, that was a great episode, having two interviews in this week, having Miss Candy on the show and Nick Hollis. I want to say a big, big thank you once again for coming on the show. Two wonderful icons of our community. Yeah. I feel like they could just replace me. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like let's, get, let's hand the show over to the two of them. They can yeah. just run the whole show. We're out of a gig, guys. <laughs> Don't forget to follow us uh, on Instagram at Gays Revolting Pod or join our group, The Gays Are Revolting, on Facebook, where we'll share embarrassing clips of Miss Candy <laughs> and whatever we can find of Nicholas. Yeah. Please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. We'd much appreciate it.
appreciate it. Yeah, leave us a good one, please. Yeah. Everyone, do it now. Five stars. We like good. <laughs> yeah. Don't think about it. Just review it. Oh, I love you all so much. I hate, oh. I hate this. It's going to be a whole other week until I see you. A whole week. Bye. 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 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.